What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. We've got a dense episode coming at you with uh, Carol Roth, who just put out. Well, actually, when, when's the uh, release date on the book? July 18th, but pre-order now. Pre-order now. You don't want to miss this. It's the rundown on the ESG scores, what the global elites are doing to keep you impoverished and how we can win. And I want to hop right into this thing because I just finished reading the book. It's a great read. In your opinion, this thing's collapsing, right? When you say this thing, you I'm assuming you mean the U.S. Uh, in terms of being in the pole position of the global financial economy, yes? Yes. Okay, yeah. So absolutely. And I think that a lot of people think that's a conspiracy theory. Um, certainly, if you study history, you know that many other modern regimes have been the global center of the financial universe. And at that time, I would imagine that the people who lived there probably felt like they were invincible. I mean, we've lived through this incredible prosperity. We don't know any different, but I'm sure the British felt like that prior to us and the Dutch felt like that prior to the British. Um, some of us, yourself included, obviously, Robbie, have been seeing the signposts and been seeing you know, what the Fed and the government through monetary, fiscal and other policy have been doing um, to the dollar, to our purchasing power, to our standing in the world. And so it's pretty clear that what's happening now is getting a little bit long in the tooth. And, you know, we're not the only people who see it. You know, the people who are very smart and very well connected are, are very well aware of what's happening. In fact, even the current president, Joe Biden, if you go over to the White House's website and you look at his remarks to the business roundtable, which is the group of the most elite CEOs in the world, look up remarks from March 21, 2022. And he says, you know, it happens every three or four generations. There's a, a new shift in the, in the global financial order and there's going to be a new world order out there. And then he says, we've got to lead this, which, you know, it's him and the powerful CEO. So I'm assuming I'm probably not included in that leadership of it, but that's the rub that they, they all know what's going on. And so, you know, they could just sit back and go, oh, gee, I, you know, I hope this works out for me. Or they could go, hey, there's going to be a shift here. You know, let's, you know, not only kind of manage it along for our benefit, but let's make sure that when it ultimately does change, that we come out on top, that, you know, we control all of the resources. And, you know, there are so many different entities that are all coming at it from their own direction. But not one of them is hoping that, you know, you and I come out on top, that they want to come out on top. So when you see you'll own nothing and you'll be happy from the World Economic Forum, you know, the elites, the political folks, the business folks, the academic folks predicting the end of private property and knowing that you know, property ownership is the way that you gain wealth, you own things that hopefully appreciate in value or at least retain their value. That's the path to wealth. So if they're telling you that that's their prediction and they want you to be happy, they want you to buy in to all of the stuff that's going on here. So let's talk about the actual collapse here. So, uh, I mean, part of the story you tell in your book is how we really overplayed our privilege of uh, having the dollar be the reserve currency of the world. Yes. Uh, and I guess part of the prediction of seeing, you know, an unwind and uh, really the United States as it's been would be that we move on from the dollar being the reserve currency. Uh, so just to like hone in on that for a second, what's your expectation for the dollar? Do you think like we collapse? What do you think the world would move on to? 
Yeah, I mean, if I had the exact formula as well as the timing, I'd be on a yacht in the Mediterranean <laughs> and wouldn't be chatting with you, Robbie. Yeah, fair um, enough. And so I, I think that's the, the challenge for people because we can see the tra trajectory, and this happens a lot in finance, which is you know where my background is, is that you can see the trajectory, but you have no idea what the duration is. It could happen in a year and it could happen in 50 years. And obviously we want to try and push this out as, as long as we possibly can before there's a change. Um, and we also don't know what form it's going to take because even if there are some things that are on the table today, there are lots of players on the, the geopolitical landscape and somebody goes rogue or does something and that changes the entire scenario of what can happen. You know, you talk about the uh, the mismanagement of the dollar and, and the sort of privilege of being at the center of the global universe. The Triffin dilemma was kind of thought of, hey, there's this conflict between managing for the world and the stability as this reserve currency and, and managing for the domestic economy. What's amazing about our Fed is that they've done neither. <laughs> they haven't managed it for the stability of the world and they haven't managed it for the stability of the, the US economy. So there are probably a lot of, of different you know ways that this could take shape. I think the most palatable one and probably the one that's most likely today is not that the US dollar goes away entirely, it just becomes diminished and it isn't sort of the only way that people trade and transact and, and everything revolves around the dollar and this exorbitant privilege, um, which has allowed the US to have cheap capital and has mostly benefited the US government because it's allowed them to borrow and expand the government at, at almost, um, you know, very, very low interest rates, you know, very, very nominal interest rates. So, you know, they're the ones that will suffer the most, but we could see a scenario where you have different alliances come to bear. We're hearing a lot about that now, de-dollarization, the BRICS countries aligning with some folks in the Middle East and talking about trading oil in different ways. Um, you know, so there could be something where there are these kind of different blocks and alliances and depending on where you are, there's different methods of trade. There could be something that's obviously been proposed many, many times over the years, which is some sort of basket of commodities, potentially with you know gold, silver and other precious metals as an anchor. But this idea, and, and we're already seeing, you know, we're already seeing in terms of just reserve currency, uh, the holdings of the U.S. dollar go down around the globe. From a trade standpoint, it hasn't been impacted as much, but we're seeing the signposts of that happening. But none of this is very clean either. So whatever happens, there could be like an interim step. And then there could be something that shifts it. There could be just, you know, a period of chaos when we went from the British pound sterling to the US dollar, it took like 15 years for that to sort of come to bear. And, and there was sort of a lot of chaos and ugliness. But one of the, the takeaways that I found in the book doing my research is that not every war precedes a new global financial world order, but every modern global financial world order has been preceded by war. So for a real reset to happen, um, you know, there could be these kind of interim chaos things, but unfortunately, that could be the catalyst. 
And, you know, just to just from a saving face perspective, that might be required in order for you know anyone in the U.S. to come to a bargaining table. I mean, I can't imagine the arrogance of the, the Fed and the people who are in the government just being like, yeah, let's just come in and negotiate something else that's not going to benefit us. Um, so the options are ugly. And, you know, I don't say this to scare anyone. It's just the reality of, you know, where we are in, in a situation and history and the fact that, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it often rhymes. And so we can kind of see this happening. And the idea is if you understand this, then it's easier for you to a come to terms with it and not be caught in that shock period and then come up with some plans to at least get through an interim period as we see what what happens in the in the global economy i know you're really deep into this do you have sort of a different you know set of thoughts of how this might come about or is that sort of ring true to you so it mostly rings true to me. This is where uh, I guess I debated in my in my head. I've been reading Zero Hedge since college, and yeah. <laughs> if you're reading Zero Hedge in college, at any point in time, you would have thought, "Oh, this this thing's over next month." Right. And you look at their fancy charts and what's going on in silver and this that, you'd be like, "This is over." And then from there, I went on and I read a bunch of uh, the work of the Austrian economist, and you learn about boom and bust cycles. And yeah. the fact that the Fed creates these boom and busts, and you look at what happened in 2008, which even back in college, I understood to be a credit asset bubble of them propping out the housing market. And then you look at the wealth expansion that they did since then, yeah. instead of recreating, and you just look at it and go, well, at some point, this can't work. Correct. With with all that being said, then I hear other people just talk about how the dollar's king shit, and you know China's a bigger mess, there's no alternative currency. I buy more into the narrative of, hey, our current system is doomed to collapse because I just don't see us being able to uh, endlessly intervene in the markets and basically prop them up to favor Wall Street, yeah. the banks, without some sort of a collapse. Uh, but as you've spoken to, it's hard to tell on timing. I think if you look at the last 10 years, who even thought the Fed intervening in the way that they did um, <laughs> and that in buying bonds through SVB and BlackRock and you know what I mean? There are tools that we didn't even realize that they would jump to that are outside of their charter that they have. Yeah. And I think that the, there is no alternative piece is one of the scariest to me because, you know, when when the British um, were struggling and, it, you know, it wasn't clear that they were the ones that are, were going to continue on in that pole position and the U.S. was was standing there and, and kind of became the center of the financial universe, actually, before they were given the crown, before Bretton Woods was, was finalized. When you look ahead and you go, OK, well, who's waiting in the wings? It's not like there's another bastion of, you know, free market capitalism and individual rights and free thinking and like all this great stuff that's like coming up and going, oh, well, you know, at least they can come in and, and take the position and, uh, you know, we can kind of root for that structure and and, and whatnot. The, the folks who are are kind of in those positions are the opposite. They're bastions of, of tyranny and dictatorial rule. And so I think that's part of the frightening thing. And they're, they are a mess and they have their own problems. Um, but, you know, that does mean that maybe you know, we're in for chaos before reset, which in and of itself 
is its own problem. But we know that the current system, unless something is done really soon to fix it, is on this unsustainable fiscal path. The Treasury has said it. The CBO has projected it. Again, this is you know hiding in, in very plain sight here. So we know just by math that this cannot continue in a way that is going to allow us um, you know any semblance of you know, owning you know what what we typically owned and having the wealth creation opportunities that we did and not just completely killing the dollar so at some point if they don't get the fortitude which i think we probably agree is unlikely to happen um it's just not going to go in the right direction but as we said that could take a really long time or there could be a catalyst that accelerates it because as you said you know we we never saw the government's reaction to COVID being what it was and that the population would go along with it and we would see the most historic transfer of wealth in our time from Main Street to Wall Street. Um, so there are these kind of black swans, which again, it's not, not the pandemic, but the reaction. So other reactions you know, could be uh, of similar vein. And it, and it certainly seems like the Ukraine war might have escalated a timetable of uh other countries actually making a gold-backed currency to uh, trade with themselves. Because I've said it, the, the stupidity of the Ukraine war is that it's almost like uh, we had Russia in our prison of having to trade in dollars, <laughs> and then we threw them out of the system and then got mad at them that they continued to trade. It's like, well, that was kind of obvious. Yeah, I mean, that was, and I note this in the book, probably what will be looked back when when this is studied historically because it's very difficult to tell sometimes when you're in the middle of it but one of those key turning points and you know what were those key things that made the dollar go away as the as the center of the universe and lose that exorbitant privilege and certainly weaponizing the US dollar against Russia when they went and they they froze the reserve assets. You know, never had an action been taken like that. And again, that was done at the administration level. This was not something that went through Congress that they voted. Um, it was very, you know, very much a, a small cabal of elites who were making this decision. And so, in some ways, you almost wonder if it was intentional. And one of the pieces that I cite is going back to, I believe it was 2014 in the New York Times, where Jared Bernstein wrote an op-ed that was something along the lines of, you know, it's time to kill King Dollar, something like that. And he actually, if you don't know who Jared Bernstein is, he's an economic advisor who advised President Obama and President Joe Biden. And he was making the argument that, oh, it's so terrible to you know, be the center of the financial universe. And you're know, notwithstanding the fact that there are issues that you have to you know, go through, as we talked about the, the con side of the trip and dilemma, there are certainly a lot of pros. And the position that we're in today, it's not like, oh, well, all of a sudden we're going to reshore manufacturing and it's going to be really inexpensive and we're going to go back to being a manufacturing country. I think that people who are making these arguments um, are delusional about what's happening here in the U.S. And they're the same people who are pushing for unions and higher minimum wages and things that are just completely in conflict with each other. And so you do wonder if they're just economic morons or just completely evil or perhaps both. <laughs> so if we look at, if we take the outlook of, all right, there's a timetable by which we've, uh, there was a great, I once saw Carlin in an interview and he talks about <laughs> how at this point decisions were made and we're just circling the drain. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of, I mean, it's a grim way to put it, but I think if you look at the uh, 
financial decisions that we have. Um, I'm like I said, I'm not 100 percent, but it seems more to me like it's doomed for failure. So assuming that it does collapse and let's say it happens even within our lifetime, next 25, 30 years. So then you see kind of the uh, current powers that be basically making a power grab on everything. That's kind of the next play is that it's kind of oligarchs at the fall of the Soviet Union and people are just grabbing up critical industry. Do you think that's the way it goes? I do. I mean, if you think of a country like Venezuela, that was the fourth richest country in the world on an aggregate basis, um, and everybody was doing very well, and then they got everyone to buy into the, oh, there's inequality and we need to do more for you and, and give us control of industry and we'll make it better. And then you see what I call the barbelling of the population where there is no sort of middle class, that you have the, the ruling elite and everybody else really has next to nothing. In fact, it was you know just a, a few years ago where they did a study and said the median net worth of people in Venezuela was zero. Me median was right. zero, like not even not even like a dollar, zero. Right. So that's the that is, I think, the reality of the projection here is, you know, what can we do? You know, this is going to go south. Let's make sure that we protect ourselves. And I don't know if it's, hey, we want to make sure these people are subservient and have nothing or just, hey, if we just buy into it, that if they buy into the, this concept that they can rent everything and they don't have to own anything, it's just going to be a much easier path for us. And we don't really care what happens to the rest of them as long as we, we retain um, you know, the, the power and the money and the comforts that we're used to. And I think that's probably, you know, in the, the choose your own adventure book, it's probably the more likely scenario. It's not that they, they're actively trying to, to be, you know, oh, we're going to stomp on you. It's just that they don't care. They just, they're self-interested. They wanted to do things for themselves and they they figure, oh, this is just an easy way. We'll trick everybody to go along with us. And the challenge as you know, the, these kind of global financial stakes shift is that it's coming at us from so many directions. Obviously, in many cases, the call is coming from inside the House, uh, the Fed and the government really desperate in terms of you know, their debt situation, uh, now their ability to finance debt. If we don't have the dollar at the center of financial universe, it's going to be even harder for them to finance debt. I mean, at this point, you know, who on the global stage wants to buy more treasuries? Pretty much no one, which means, you know, the investment community is pretty full of them. People have been going into them now because interest rates have been going up and, you know, they can get more on a T-bill than they can on their their a bank account. But over time, as that normalizes, you know, who is going to be the buyer of like trillions and trillions of dollars of U.S. Treasury? New, new U.S. Treasuries added to the mix. Probably the only uh, entity that's there to buy it is the Fed, which, as we know, is just modern monetary theory and debasing the dollars. And we've obviously lived through that movie real recently and know the outcome of it. So I just, you know, it, it, unless there is that, um, oh, you know, we're going to change things around. We're going to roll back spending and give up some of our power. Not real likely to happen. I think that's a huge, huge threat. And it's a very different financial war, right? Because if normally in a financial war, you would have a, a country and they go out and they conquer the wealth of another nation and its people, the war is now internal. It's like, how do we legally plunder what's what's 
going on here in the U.S. because it's you know much less distasteful to do that than it is to go out and, and you know, get another nation's wealth. And oh, by the way, you know nobody has enough wealth for us to be able to to live on. So that's you know one entity. And then you have all these bad actors that are sort of cheering them on from the UN and the World Economic Forum and other entities. And they're trying to, to kind of get their ideas installed and, and get their piece of the pie. Um, and then you have big tech, which normally technology makes our lives better and, and sort of democratizes uh, wealth creation and has more people participating. But this last wave has been very anti-capitalistic there are a handful of companies that kind of own critical infrastructure. And so they're all looking for ways to rent your life back to you as a service. Wall Street is obviously just Wall Street. I'm a recovering investment banker. I get it. You know, they're looking to financialize everything. They're competing with you to buy homes. They're looking to financialize water. So like we're literally fighting this battle on every single front. And that's why I think this information is so important because you really have to empower yourself to know what each of these individual battles looks like to even come up with a plan to go, okay, well, how am I going to deal with this piece? And how am I going to deal with this piece? And frankly, for those of us who are like-minded, we all have different strengths. So since there are so many things, we're all not going to be able to take the lead on every single one of them. But if we divide and conquer and can kind of support each other, I think we have a much better chance of at a minimum sort of delaying it. And I think that's the reality of the situation. Let's just like push this out as far as possible. Maybe we can save it in our lifetimes. Maybe we can save for the next generation. Maybe over time, another bastion of, of freedom and, and great ideals pops up. But like at this point, obviously I'd like to turn things around, but I think the more realistic mitigation stance is like, let's just see how long we can put this off for and, you know, create a workable scenario for everybody. Uh, in terms of uh, technological developments and delaying it, one of the things that you outline in the book is the uh, why everyone needs to oppose social credit scores. And yeah. you kind of break down how they exist in China, the technological expansion that now allows for them, and how they were very close to being implemented with health passports, with COVID, uh, in a way none of us would have expected two or three years ago. So I'll hand it back to you. I think our audience is relatively familiar with the uh, social credit scores. I think uh, you threw in elements of the book of uh, just how much technology I rely on that I could be removed <laughs> from that I wasn't yeah. quite fully aware of. Um, so I'll hand it back to you because I do think that that is, in terms of delaying or pushing back on a technology, uh, that like that's that's one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, I think there's, you know, kind of a, a half step before that just to set it up. As you said, you know, and, and your audience clearly you know, is familiar and having lived through this, but you know, social credit, I think a lot of people think of it as, oh, we're just, you know, shutting people's voices down. And because not everybody kind of thinks in, in financial terms, they don't really realize the financial implications and sort of the ties to the you will own nothing thesis. So there are sort of three different ways that you can earn a living or, or gain wealth. And social credit really came at all of those during COVID. Um, you know, you talk about social standing. Your social standing are those connections that give you the opportunities 
whether it's a job or an investment opportunity and you cancel culture, moving on to something more formalized, you know, where you can't participate in society or a bad person because you haven't had a vaccine or whatnot, you know, that really does shut down your social standing, but it also shuts down those wealth creation opportunities. Then they came after people's jobs, as we know. Um, you know, some of them, if they didn't take the vaccine, some of them by shutting down the places where they work, and that's your op actual opportunity to earn a living and get those dollars that you can then invest in and gain wealth. And then the third piece is you're taking your actual assets, which you know they they shut down a, a third of the economy, mostly small businesses. They actually took those businesses for the good of society. Um, and didn't really kind of pay them what was due under eminent domain. And so, you know, we we saw that piece happen, you know, actually taking away assets, the things that create and generate wealth and returns. Um, and obviously, you know, many of those businesses were killed by mandate. Up to the north in Canada, when you had the trucker convoy, you know, we, you saw the, the freezing of the assets and the bank accounts. So, you know, you have this kind of financial framework and you have the buy-in from you know the the masses that hey if the government says this we're going to go along with it and we're going to enforce it but the way that it really comes at you at scale and can be formalized you know, from a state perspective is through technology and um you know, obviously the the big tech companies have been very helpful um, you know, in some of these endeavors that the the government has wanted uh, <laughs> wanted to pursue, they have gone out on their own in terms of wrong think um, to shut people out of critical infrastructure, whether it's social media or payment systems or whatnot. Um, we haven't really seen it with the phone operating systems yet, but you know that's really scary. I don't think most people realize that Google, um, Alphabet, and Apple they have 99 plus percent of all mobile operating systems, not just in the US, but worldwide. So if they decide that like you're not a good person and you, you know, you can't access anything, you may have this brick, but like, what are you going to do with it if you can't access anything because they don't want you on the operating system? Now, Apple in particular has been pretty good with privacy. They did shut down um, Apple Pay in Russia at the government's behest. So we have to keep an eye on that. But they've been pretty good. But that's based on the current people who are involved. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be a new CEO who becomes installed in the future and all of that changes. So, you know, there's that piece of it. And then there's the digital currency piece of technology that I think is equally as frightening. Um, and that's really the government trying to capitalize on the enthusiasm for cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin, um, which was founded as a pushback against fiat currency. The, the entire underlying thesis there is decentralization. We don't trust you with the money and not you know, manipulating it and debasing it and killing the value of it. So, you know, we're going to, to have something that's de decentralized and theoretically you could you can argue it. I'm not here to make that argument or not make that argument, but you know, that's at least the thesis is that it's it's not manipulable and that it's decentralized. And so the people, again, thinking about jockeying to retain power, you know, what's the most powerful force that they can control? Well, one of them certainly is the money, right? You control the money, you control the people. And 
I think that they don't want to, to lose the ability, obviously, to be in control of what happens with the money and be able to weaponize it at their whim, whether it's towards a population or towards another country, as we talked about with Russia. And so they're going to say, hey, we're coming up with a digital version of the U.S. dollar. So, you know, all of those issues with Bitcoin, you know, you've seen those exchanges go bankrupt. We're going to make sure you're safe. And, uh, you know, the, the masses are going to buy into this, just like they bought into the stimulus checks and say, oh, do you want your Donnie dollars? Do you want your Biden bucks? Yes, I want mine. Um, not realizing that they were going to have to pay exponentially more in terms of inflation for the rest of their lives, forgetting that because they just fundamentally don't understand basic finance and economics. Um, so you'll have the government be able to or in there they're they're certainly trying with the fed to have this digital dollar that is fully centralized and that they can control on a unit by unit basis it would be the equivalent of having a microchip in every dollar that you want to, to spend at the store and that the, the the clerk has to scan it and they go oh you know robbie i'm so sorry you know you had too many burgers this month um, burgers are bad for the environment, so we're just not going to let you have access to the money. And the, the ways that they can do this, when you start to think about this, are just so clear. They could promise UBI. We're going to give you universal basic income. We're going to give you free money, which again, as we all understand here, most people don't understand that it's not free money. And people are going to say, great, but you have to sign up for digital dollars. Okay, well, I'm happy to do that. They're going to say, hey, Robbie, you know that dollar you have? I'm going to give you four digital dollars if you turn in your dollar. And you're going to go, that's idiotic. Each one of those is going to be debased. But the average person is going to go, wow, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is great. Get, yes, load me up. I'm more, this is so fantastic. Again, not understanding basic concepts. Um, they may say, hey, we've been dealing with inflation for so long. We, we know how we can fix this. Digital dollars will let us control inflation. Well, sure, they can control inflation because when they don't want consumers to spend, they will literally cut off access to your money. So there are all these kind of clear entry points that we can see. And it, it's interesting because in China, uh, they've been pushing for a digital currency. They're further ahead than we are and some of the other places are. And they have all of these, these wallets. And you may remember this from the book. You know, each one of those wallets has something like the equivalent of you know 40 or 50 cents in those wallets because the people don't want to use the government-issued digital wallets. They'd rather just use private payment systems. And so one of the folks who does analysis on China basically said, if China wants to make this happen, they're just going to have to force it. And so we can see a similar which thing happen. At. Yeah, which they are. I mean, <laughs> you know, communists, right? That's what they do. And so I think that, you know, we can see that happen also here in the United States, that they're going to try all of this bait. And then if that bait doesn't work, you know, at the end of the day, they could just force it as well. So but that's a, that's an area where we can push back because, you know, it needs to be codified by Congress. And people are aware of this. We are seeing some pushback at the state level too. The one place that makes me really nervous is that we've been seeing some of the language coming out of these anti-CBDC uh, CBDC bills 
that basically are creating loopholes <laughs> that okay. will then allow it to happen in a different form. And I think that's the biggest concern is that the people who are coming up with this language maybe don't have the full um, knowledge and domain experience. So hopefully we can get more people involved in the discussion so there aren't these loopholes. Um, but you know that would be a really great place to shut things down because honestly, you know, if you get it to a situation where they have that level of control um, and full transparency over the currency. I mean, you lose everything, you lose freedom, you lose agency, and you know you potentially have your, your entire wealth at risk. So that's something that people really need to be keyed into, not only try to, to be thinking about um, how to push back, but also prepare for, because you know if the government controls your currency, what alternate sort of set of um, you know, ec alternate economy are you going to be able to use and you know, what are you going to use to barter with and those kinds of things, because that would be a huge and tremendous um, shift. And we will have signposts for it. I mean, that's, again, not something that's going to happen overnight, but it could happen more quickly than we're anticipating. And just to give people like a little, uh, I guess, tangible simplified risk of this uh, CBDC is that if we had it during COVID, the same as you needed a passport to get into a restaurant, they would have just said, oh, you're not vaccinated. You can't have your money. And then what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Well, you just stay in your hat like what you can't hire anyone to help you out. Like you're literally just trapped. Well, let's go back to China for a second, because as we talked about with social credit, um, you know, when we're talking about social credit in the U.S., it's very loose. It's, you know, kind of the next step up from cancel culture. And it's kind of this this loose set of you know people joining in with the government to, to enforce this right thing versus wrong thing. But in China, it's more developed. It's not as developed as some people think, but it is more developed and it's developed on sort of a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So depending on what's important in that jurisdiction, they may give you a letter grade or they may give you a number grade. Um, and the compliance, the things that earn you points or take away points are obviously completely decided by the people in those jurisdictions. So some of the things that earn you great points are things like visiting your parents or giving blood or go check this one out, praising the government on social <laughs> media. So those things are, are very good. And things that are bad are things like incurring debts and cheating at video games and taking up too much room on an airplane, which I agree is really annoying, but probably shouldn't be codified into the government social credit system and also saying bad things about the government. And it gets to the point that the, the level of punishment already in the system that's not particularly fully developed, um, the NPR interviewed a man named Lao Duan from China who was a coal intermediary. So he basically, um, you know, kind of was the middleman in the coal industry. China overnight changed its policies on coal. He was completely screwed based on a government decision, had to go bankrupt. And because the government decided what he was doing was bad, he's now on the blacklist, as well as a lot of his um, former colleagues. And I think you said in the book that he saw his face on a billboard. This right out of an Orwell movie <laughs> that you, he goes into town, he looks at the digital billboard and there he is. And it says untrustworthy person with his <laughs> name and his number and he can't fly and he can't, you know, do, uh, you know, most of the travel and these kinds of things. And again, 
10 years ago, Robbie, we might have a very different conversation about this. We might go, yeah, you like, I get that could happen, but like, we're so far away from that. But having lived through the last few years, like we can no longer say that we're that far away from that. Um, and, you know, we've got this, this unfortunate model of where it's going. Um, and to say that, oh, we're like China, we're a lot more like China than we're dissimilar to China versus where we were, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. So, I mean, we, we kind of already have it, at least in my sphere. I mean, I ignore it and I just move forward with what I do. But with the content I've put out online, uh, certain advertisers won't touch you. You yeah. get downgraded in certain content spheres for sure. Yeah. Uh, I've been removed from YouTube before. Earlier in my comedy career, I kind of accepted, all right, I'm not going to be one of these television people. That's probably not going to be. But that's all a version of social credit to go, it hey, is. you've got this opinion. And so now all of these areas are no longer available to you. Right. And that is affecting you financially. And the same thing has happened to me in terms of advertisers, speaking engagements, um, influencer gigs, media gigs and the like is that, oh, you're actively talking out about this. You don't have the same opinions on these things. And so you must be punished financially for it. And that's a big part of the thesis, because obviously, if those financial opportunities go away, uh, that's one piece of you being able to make those asset investments that will allow you to have wealth and to have ownership over the long run. So it's it's you know it, it's another kind of piece of the individual rights, that property rights piece that I think sometimes doesn't get talked about enough, along with our, our other individual rights and freedoms. All right. So I think the uh, the next piece of the puzzle here in terms of talking about social credit scores is the world of uh, ESG and what BlackRock and the other big investment houses are uh, instituting. Before we kind of delve into BlackRock, ESG and the World Economic Forum, I'm curious how Larry Fink came out the winner here. Um, like 10 years ago, the conversation was more Goldman Sachs and Polson, and it seemed like the preferred players were the other banks who were tied in with the Fed. How did Larry Fink kind of become the new guy who's tied in with the Fed, who's now push, pushing this, you know, ESG racket, um, which I think everyone, I mean, you can give the condensed version, but I think everyone listening is fairly familiar with. So my take on it is that it was, um, it, first of all, it was done sort of covertly. And it's also just a level of awareness once he become, became outspoken on ESG, because the reality is there are three very large asset managers in the US and frankly, the world, which are BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street. And I remember back in the day when I was a financial analyst in investment banking, you have to go through 10 Ks and 10 Qs and all the financial reporting and look at the top investors. You'd be like, well, why are the same investors at the top of every single company? And the reality is, is because they have so much money under management that like they have to put it to work somewhere. So right. eventually they're going to hit and pepper between the three of them, pretty much every company out there. So, you know, Larry Fink and BlackRock have been a, a force to be reckoned with for a very long time. Um, right now they have the largest amount of assets under management. It was around $10 trillion. Obviously that shifts as the market shifts. So I don't have like a, a mark to market update today, but you know, you get the scope, whether it's nine and a half or nine point eight ten trillion. you know, it's, it's a lot of money. Um, and so that really gives him 
a lot of power to shift the conversation because you know they are investors and granted it is on somebody else's behalf but you know whether you're buying into a, a fund that they manage or you know pension funds are investing with them you know it's not like a direct relationship it's not like you're calling up your your Merrill Lynch or your Schwab broker and so there's sort of this arm's length distance where they're like oh well we have all this money boy i guess that gives us the ability to to do things and Larry Fink um, has been very close and, and has been very prominent in the World Economic Forum. And so this is sort of speculation and, and connecting the dots. But, you know, if you go back to the bigger thesis that the world elite see that things are changing um, and you try to say, well, you know, how do I make sure that I'm still on top? You know, that could be one thesis. The other thesis is, I mean, Lord, when you've got $10 trillion in assets under management, like, where do you go from there? Like, there's not a lot of like, like, oh, hey, here's my next milestone. My next milestone is I am God. I know it's good for everything. I'm going to shape the world in the way that I think makes sense because, Lord, look at how smart and successful I am. So, you know, it, it's probably a piece of each of those and, and perhaps some other things as well. But, you know, the World Economic Forum has had these same really bad ideas that they keep trying to repackage. I mean, Klaus Schwab, for all of his uh, faults, I mean, he's a persistent MFR. I mean, he's been at the stakeholder capitalism thing since 1971 and repackaging it and it keeps falling flat and it keeps falling flat and they keep changing the language of sustainable investing and responsible well, investing. Why did it ever catch on? Why did the global elite ever go, all right, we're going to listen to this guy. We're going to let him be in charge. I would think if you have <laughs> one guy going, hey, I got to run everything and it's going to be better for everyone. And no one's like, well, what's your leverage? What do you bring into the table? You run oil, you run pharma, you run the military. Like, I would think you would just get laughed off the stage. People would be like, you're not doing anything for us. Unless, I don't know, maybe he's part of some Epstein blackmail racket. And so everyone got sucked into the table, you know, for other reasons. Yeah. Like maybe the way, you know, Wexner or what. I, I'm just saying, I don't understand what that guy brings to the table that he's in the conversation to lead the movement. So there, there are people who are much better students of this and have gone deep into like, how did this guy, you know, become his thing? Glenn wrote his great reset book and other people have things. I've come at it from more the financial perspective, but basically my best guess on the information I did research is that you know, he sort of ended up in the right place and was really good at leveraging that. So the, this World Economic Forum started out as a European management forum, which with the stakeholder capitalism idea in the middle. And then there were some geopolitical events that happened in the 70s with the Yom Kippur War and the oil embargo and all of these things geopolitically. And so he just said, like, I'm going to invite some political people to this. And it just seemed like the timing was was ripe for that. And they got some people connected in there. And as they just got more people connected, this just became a place, you know, it's in a fancy area. It's a nice boondoggle that everybody wants to go to. And he just kind of like was the guy What's at the middle. It was a good party. Yeah, he's the guy with the nice house that throws the party. You know that kid in high school where it's like, eh, he's not really that cool, but his, you know, he always throws parties and his parents right, have a nice trash house. His parents and, house. Yeah, we could just go to his parents. So I kind of feel like that's how it started. And then eventually 
you know, he he's sort of emerging in the middle of this thing. And it took quite some time. And then he gets the UN involved and he gets these other organizations that goes, oh, I've got the money makers over here. If you come be part of this, I could connect you with these people. So all these people are seeing benefits in and around this sort of group of elite that he has cultivated. And so I don't even think that most of them buy into the things that he's talking about, but because, you know, you want to go to the, the fun party, you don't care whose house it's at. So but it's a then, feedback loop of networking that a bunch of people see that other powerful people are there go, hey, I can network. And then it becomes, oh, look, this is the place to be. And a lot of them don't even care about that aspect. Exactly. And I think if you see some of the people associated with it, like, you know, I I call myself in the book a useful idiot. I went to an event that they had in New York where they they had you know so massive bestsellers. I was an idiot. And I, I said, <laughs> oh, this is an interesting thing. And I blogged in like 2010 about like how interesting this event was. And I didn't know all this other stuff that was going on. It was just sort of a piece of a, a bigger puzzle. So I think then once you have all these connections, and it may be very analogous to the Epstein thing, right? Once you have all these connections, then you can leverage them. And you start going, hey, well, I hang out with this guy and this guy and this guy, and I've got these political leaders and whatever. And then the people who you know want to profit and who are smart see those opportunities. And that's where I think it gets bastardized and sort of turns out of control. So um, that's sort of my guess is that it organically started as, you know, this party at this like weird kid's house. And eventually, you know, the, the smartest people began to leverage it. And now we've got to the point where that's actually given Klaus Schwab um, a lot of status, and he's figured out ways to bring people into the organization specifically to have them carry back out the bad ideas and making it benefit them. Like he talks about in a video that you can find easily on YouTube at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, penetrating the cabinets that, you know, he and this was uh, particularly in regards to Canada, where he knew everybody and in, in Justin Trudeau's cabinet, including Justin Trudeau, who have been affiliated as young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. So he's figured this out. But again, this has taken a lot. This is a lot of perseverance here. We're talking since 71, like we're talking over 50 years that this guy has been just at the same focus, the same ridiculous and frankly, evil and nefarious focus that has now finally found the, these cheerleaders. And so then you get Larry Fink. It's like, OK, well, all the smart people are in the room. I can, I, you know, it's like an easy one stop shop. I've got lots of capital to influence this. And he was really, you know, with with the quote unquote ESG label and, and bringing it around, you know, 2019, 2020 is when you really started seeing that becoming entrenched. He put out his shareholder letter. He put out a letter to CEO. He said, we're going to be using our capital to vote against management teams and boards of directors who are not on board with this. I mean, this is go look up his own language. It's very, very explicit. And it's been very clear. And there's a Bloomberg piece that I reference in there uh, in the book that basically says, yeah, you know, he he has this huge um, amount of capital and a lot of funds and a lot of uh, investors and, and advisors were putting people into funds, not even knowing that they were ESG funds or not even realizing what those were. And so he made ESG a thing 
without participants even realizing what had happened, just based on his scale and the leverage that that brought him. And so now you have, you know, all these different um, entities who are basically frightened to death. The business roundtable all signed on to principles for responsible and investing and this whole concept because they cannot risk not having access to capital. Look what has happened in the fossil fuels industry when they decided that you know this is not something that we want people to invest in they've been incredibly underinvested it has been a horrible situation um and you know affects each one of our lives and has made our lives more costly created economic and national security issues because you have this group who is holding people hostage using other people's money so i i do have an esg question for you yes uh which is a couple things I was thinking about when I was reading your book is uh, kind of the, the parasite eating the host. And I look at the entire ESG system and I look at, to me, stock market is probably inflated. You got Fed money that's been swirling around in there. Prob probably inflated? I, I mean, I, I'm not giving out investment <laughs> advice and I, I don't know. I, I don't really know where people should better park their money, but okay. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting my money into the S&P. Um, but everything... Firstly, the stock market in general, it's trades at P multiples because people believe that there's going to be growth. And I think yes. historically we're probably at higher multiples. We are. But part of that is that everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to invest in these companies and they're going to continue to grow. Correct. Uh, and the entire financial world, like in some ways kind of benefits from one government's in on the racket with 401ks that you're incentivized and also your IRAs and there's deferments, but we've created a general atmosphere where you're being responsible. If you got your pension fund or you're this, and you're basically putting your money in the market and no one's going to fault you. No one likes to be at fault for when things go wrong. So if you're, if you know, if you're going out, you're getting a mortgage from your house and you're putting your money into the stock market, look at me. I can feel good about that. I'm headed for retirement. I'm going with the flow. I'm being a responsible adult. And that's what most people like is to not have to think about things and feel like they're making reasonable decisions. Are you with me so far? Generally speaking, but okay. pro probably some nuances there, but we'll, we'll leave that for another time. All right. So here's my ESG question is that to me, I feel like they're going to blow up their whole spot because they're introducing too much rot into the marketplace. It's like there was already fraud in the entire Wall Street game and system. You got everyone to buy in on the basis that there's going to be future growth and that this is responsible. But like to me, you're like you're you're now introducing a whole new element where every single stock and everything, it's no longer even about value and returns. There's this other metric of just socialism and fairness. You've literally taken out the basic thing, which was we're already pretending that we're doing better than we are and that stocks are growing. And you've changed the formula where it's like you don't even necessarily need to create value in the marketplace. And if you're trying to go out and expand your business, but it's a way that we don't think is good for the environment or promoting women, then we're not going to fund it. I feel like that just like you're adding one more element that I just look at. I'm like, you're going to collapse your own house of cards on yourself. So this is where logical people like you and like me, like the, the brain starts to explode. Like it's just like, right. you can't make it compute. It's sort of the same way I feel in general, but why would you not want the middle class to flourish? Because you know, like Henry Ford did, you, you want people to be able to buy your products and services. So and that, the government's you know, got equity in all of our businesses. You would think that they would love freedom because you go out, go make stuff, go grow your business and I'll take a slice of the pie, go invent so, something. 
Yeah, so you're asking me to explain crazy. So I'm I'm gonna <laughs> right. I'm gonna explain this like I'm not I mean I'm I am crazy, but I'm not that kind of crazy. So it's a right. different kind of crazy. So I'm like trying to get into like the only thing that I can come up with, which again to logical people doesn't really make any sense, but none of this really makes any sense. So we'll just go with with crazy world here, is that in their game that they don't really care if the whole thing exists. They just need to come out on top. So if there's just a handful of companies that are left that they can all control and they have the wealth on a relative basis with nobody else having anything, then they're just as well off. And so you know they, they're not looking at the totality of the system and they're not caring about the growth of the system and growing the whole pie and dividing it up and we still have a bigger piece. They're just going... Yeah, well, we're just going to have our thing and like, you know, anyone else who doesn't, well, we're going to use the rest for power and that's okay because we'll still have these handful of companies that are going to be, you know, collecting rents on everyone and have little competition and, you know, we'll be in charge and we'll be dictating things and, you know, kind of going back to the, to the ages where, you know, you just had, uh, you know, this elite class and then everybody else at the bottom. That's sort of my guess. Or maybe they're just not thinking of the implications. You know, really, they're just so, so you know, like kind of like some of the COVID decisions, right? Like there's this myopia of this is the thing and I'm just going to ignore all of this carnage that's happening and not look at the decision holistically because I just am in this bubble and I, you know, I've kind of lost the, I, the ability to have logic and reason because I'm in a place where, you know, that's just sort of not the, the standard operating procedure. So I saw it like, uh, and, and this is more for the green energy stuff than the, you know, forcing Bud Light to go with <laughs> right. sponsor trans influencers, which makes even less sense to me. Um, but I saw it as there were investments that they wanted to make that they knew could not be profitable in a market because, you know, the alternative energy does not yeah. create enough value. And so the only way for them to make it profitable was to essentially rig the market, which robs us all of our wealth by driving up prices on goods and services that we want to consume. But now I'm wondering if maybe there's a possibility that they're more just front running the markets and essentially they've pitched investors on, listen, we're going to make regulation that's going to make these investments profitable. And so we're making this big push into the yeah. ESG, into the environmental stuff. They know that it's not sustainable, but they're going to cash out. So so there's a, a, another thesis that I've been playing around with that's specific to oil and gas. And again, this is just us kind of brainstorming right. here. I don't have any. Uh, the, my book is incredibly well sourced. Everything <laughs> in the book has a source now. There's right. Like and then I dragged you into Looney World. That is so my this apology. Is, this is just making <laughs> shit up on the fly. OK, right. So basically, if you think about who are the people who are gaining wealth and power over from fossil fuel? Right. It's you know, countries that we aren't real well aligned with um, the Middle East and Russia, but also in the U.S., it's the the power centers that um, a lot of the other people in power really don't like. Right. It's the red states um, in many cases that are deriving significant wealth from that. So if you are like, well, how do we change the dynamic, the power structure here? Like, how do we not have these people have oh, so access it's tech versus to big wealth? Oil. 
Yeah, that basically it's like, okay, if we have this new green thing that we can all control, the people in the Northeast can control. And again, it's kind of stupid because obviously a lot of the rare earth minerals still come from China and whatever. But like, if we can all make sure this new thing, we all have a stake in, then they no longer have the power and we have the power. And again, it's sort of a half-baked plan, but this is the the level of of um, sophistication that unfortunately we're dealing with in many of these realms. So I do think it is part of that front running of what's this new big thing that we can invest in. It will kill off, you know, some of these people in the red states and their power. We can get the power, and the new money that's created is something that we're driving, we're controlling, we're in, you know, the pilot seat on. And I think that's a, a very clear possibility for some of the folks. Now, certainly not everybody that I think they're probably again, different motivations here, but I see that as potential, a, a reasonably educated potential as to why they want to do that. And you can even leave the, the red state piece and the, the China and Middle East piece out of this and just say, Hey, you know, this is just an opportunity for us to control the next big thing. Got it. All right. And now I'm once again dra gra dragging you into Looney World. I, I love it. Book. I love it. <laughs> All right. So in the discussion of World Economic Forum, BlackRock, ESG scores, and divestment yes. away from oil, how come the Rockefellers didn't get a mention in the book at all? You know, I just don't really focus that much on them. Um, right. It's just, you know, it, it's one of those things that I know lots of people are super focused on, but in my day-to-day, in the financial markets and they just don't really come up very much and and it's funny when i did my research and into all of these things the same names came up over and over again it was the un it was the wef it was blackrock you know, to the point where it's not no longer a coincidence and it's just not a name that you know really kind of showed up anywhere as a, a constant force. So I'm not saying that there isn't potentially an issue there, but the book was already long enough and my editor <laughs> yelled at me and wanted to make it smaller. Um, so yes, there could be follow-ups well, and maybe that's a, a hole to go down. But when I did the research and saw that the entities that had their prints, their paw prints all over this, those were the entities. Now it's possible that Rockefellers behind the scenes have some paw prints going on, um, but it just, either way, it's sort of irrelevant to the thesis of the book. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you with uh, two more questions and uh, I definitely think we should close it out uh, on a positive note because you do have some recommendations <laughs> of how people can win in this. Uh, but one of the stories you brought up in the book, and I remember this from last year and it really was overlooked, but for all of the, uh, environmental benefits that the World Economic Forum and others and, you know, the way that they're trying to pretend to do good, uh, Sri Lanka turned into a pretty good case study of an epic failure. Uh, and what I noticed in your book right away was that it was somewhat revolved around fertilizer, which I'd seen the stories of, I think it's going on in, what was it? Was it Iceland? I don't remember where, but there's been quite a few reductions in the usage of nitrogen, which didn't make sense, particularly last year when yeah. food prices were going up. So I, I think just because no one really covered it, if you want to tell people a little bit about uh, the World Economic Forum, specifically in Sri Lanka and how poor that went and what they're currently doing, you know, in terms of reduction, reducing fertilizer, because it's such a good case study of, yeah, your plan didn't work. 
So this is a, a perfect example where you get the same names that keep popping up. So um, you know, the UN and Sri Lanka, BlackRock, WEF, all very entrenched together. You go back several years, BlackRock is touting, oh, I think Sri Lanka is really this interesting country. We should be focused on it. We should be investing in it. At the same time, Sri Lanka is out at the World Economic Forum and at the UN talking about how they're the, the PMs talking about how they're going to make the country rich and how they're going to be this you know model for you know, environmental countries and it's just got this ESG footprint all over it. Um, so when the not current but previous president uh, ran, he basically said, you know, I am committed to the environment. I'm committed to all of these um, ESG ideals and the first thing he tried to do was really kind of do what, what the Netherlands is doing is go into the, the farmers and say, we're going to you know shut down some of the farms. Farmers weren't having any of that. So the next thing was like, okay, well then we're just going to ban chemical fertilizers. And you took this, this country that was a, a major agricultural juggernaut in terms of being able to feed their own population, but also export. Um, and that had, you know, lots of, of uh, building in the country, a thriving middle class, they're having malls, you know, it's really, really going well. And within like a year's period of time, now they're suffering a food crisis. And it was specific to the fact that these farmers couldn't get the fertilizer. And so they weren't able to get the yields from their crops. Now, granted, there were other things that were going on at the time. Um, you know, COVID had less tourism coming to the country. They had debt that was denominated in dollars and a lot of it. So there are other external factors, but none of those things created a food crisis that you know, created social unrest and led to the overthrowing of the president. Strangely enough, the guy who is the PM who is sort of leading the charge with the World Economic Forum ends up being the guy who's the new president. So, you know, they, they kind of swapped out one for another. But the startling you know, part about this is they're holding up Sri Lanka as this ESG model country. And they've got this great environmental score at the same time where people are standing in line for food and fossil fuels and, you know, many people died and, and people are starving in a really previously thriving nation. And I think that's, you know, one of the takeaways. And there was another African country I referenced in the book too, that really high environmental index score, but they've been having blackouts. So apparently if you don't have electricity, <laughs> it's really good for the environment, but you know, you just can't really live. And I, I think that's the it's it's very parallel to a lot of the things with COVID, the, the 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 arguments of like, okay, we're doing this, and you're like, yeah, well, what about everything else around it? I'm and just a doctor. I look at it from a medical standpoint. Exactly. So this is we want and we want good environmental, but you're basically killing off your people. You're creating food crises, and so again, as you kind of look at all the ties and the people here. Um, and kind of ex export this this concept. You've got a similar situation happening in the Netherlands, and in the Nether Netherlands, their Prime Minister Mark Rutte is also very entrenched with the World Economic Forum, and they are part of something called the Food Action Alliance, where they're trying to 
using all the, you know, the buzzwords of WF, reimagine, reshape, rethink the way that food is produced and sourced and distributed and consumed. And you're like, why? Like we're, we're doing pretty well, you know, on the food scenario uh, from a, a global standpoint until you get involved and start messing all of this up. And so you're seeing these same characters, you know, now in the Netherlands, they're having the protests with the farmers. Um, you know, they're talking about not letting them, um, you know, continue to have certain livestock. We saw in Ireland with them, you know, killing off, um, you know, some of the livestock as well. So you're starting to see all of these things. And as much as money controls the people, food and water also control the people as well. And so it's a very scary development as you have these same people who are trying to jockey to control resources, you know, not just looking at the financial resources, but looking at your very basic needs of food and water and really moving that around to benefit whatever it is that, uh, you know, they, they think is important that particular day, which again is not, you know, for your benefit, it's for theirs. In fact, I share, I don't know if, if this one stood out to you in the book, Robbie, but I share a vintage Twilight Zone episode. That was so great. The, the eat people, the should, to serve people. I, yeah. So, yeah. So basically the, 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 if you're not familiar with the episode, the aliens come down um, from another planet to earth and the people of earth are like, what is happening here? Why are you on our planet? Like, you know, should we be scared? They said, no, no, we saw you had famines. We saw you had wars and we have the technology. We fixed that on our planet. And we just want to help you out. And so, of course, at first, everybody's very skeptical. And so they put the, one of the aliens through a lie detector and he's passing the lie detector. And at the same time, you have a group that's kind of like a CIA group that's trying to decode one of the manuals they left behind. And the cover they find out is to serve man. And so, you know, everyone's like, OK, well, that's what they told us. They're here to serve us and to help us out. And that's very noble. That's great. And so they decide to accept the aliens and they start going on trips you know, up on the spaceship to their planet. And as one of the CIA guys is like boarding the, the, the spaceship, one of his co-workers has now cracked the code of the rest of the book and comes running out and is like, to serve man is a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about all of this. It's like, if there's a takeaway here, to serve man is a cookbook. So when you see all these people talking about they're doing this for the good of society to serve man, just remember that um, you know what they're saying and what their underlying intention is. Uh, it's often very nuanced. They're, they're good at sales. All right, well, uh, we'll close it out with this question from the comments. What do you suggest for well-off Americans do either to survive or take advantage of the situation? And it's not everyone in my chats like Mr. B and well-off. We got some poor people <laughs> out there too. So maybe you can give broader recommendations. <laughs> yeah, so, so obviously... Um, you know, the idea here that the last chapter of the book, there's a little Easter egg. It's chapter 11. Usually chapter 11 means bankruptcy, but chapter 11 <laughs> is how to fight back and how to actually gain wealth. So it's a little Easter egg for you guys there. Um, the idea here is you have to, and each one of these, you know, we talked about a lot of scenarios. We didn't even hit them all. Um, so there's different behavioral and financial scenarios. But since he talked about the, the being well off in financial scenarios, I do think that you want to have a diversified portfolio of hard assets. So that could include, you know, your home that could include productive land that could include pr precious metals. I am not a crypto person, but, you know, for crypto people, you know, they would argue that that's probably you know, part of the, the scenario here, although it's not 
technically a, a hard asset um, and, and really diversify. I think that we don't know exactly which of these things are going to happen. So you want to have yourself covered. One thing that I think is really important for all of us to do in general is to look at what these elite people do and not what they say, right? The same people who are having climate emergencies, but building waterfront mansions and, and on hopping on private jets. Like what are the things that they're investing in? Because that's where the protectionism is going to come. So like we were talking about Robbie with the, with the, with the companies, um, you know, where is it that they're seeking to protect things and how can you have broad uh, exposure to what they're trying to protect as well as, as things in case that doesn't work out. So I do think diversification, but particularly hard assets is important. And then obviously um, behavioral shifts in terms of, you know, how you interact with things that uh, wouldn't go that deep on technology, but there are so many um, aspects of technology that really could upend your wealth situation that I think that's important to think about. And then like if stuff really hits the fan, I think it's critically important um, for you to have thought through that. And what is that alternate economy? Like who are those people in your community, like where you can get food and you can get medical supplies and you can get these things um, you know, I don't mean to sound like a prepper, but like I'm prepper light, like you do need to be thinking through some of these things and have a, a plan B for a chaotic period. And how are you going to pay for those? Like, are you going to you know, trade guns and ammos and baby formula? Are you going to use a precious metal? Like what what's going to be the mechanism in case, you know, CBDC, your, your access is shut down. So I think that's, um, that's a piece of it. You know, for the people who aren't as well off, uh, you know, one of the big messages here is we're screwed ownership. in this current landscape anyway, so don't worry about no, it. I mean, listen, it's, it's about ownership and it's about austerity. And I know it's it's not something that people really like to do, but everybody who tells me, oh, you know, I can barely do this or do that. I can go through and look at you know where they're spending their money and go, do you really need this? Do you really need this? And by the way, this is not something I'm not willing to do myself. When I came out of college and had $40,000 of college debt, I lived in a teeny tiny apartment and had a cardboard box with a bed sheet over it as my bedside table for five years. So like I've been willing to do these things, but giving up some of the spending and making more of a focus on investing and creating the opportunity to have some of that ownership, some of those hard assets, I think is, is critically important because again, we don't know when this is going to shift. And so, you know, if it happens 20 years from now, that's 20 years of appreciation in other assets that you may miss out on, you know, before kind of the next phase hits. So that's a really important thing to think about. I know it, it kind of creates a complex matrix, um, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, hope for the best and, and also plan for the worst at the same time so that you're covered regardless of how this unfolds. All right, everybody, go pre-order the book. I don't have a ton of focus. I don't love sitting down and reading things. I read this in three nights and it was an absolute thrill. It's a very clean run-through uh, of topics I talk about on the show with details I hadn't known. You guys will love it. And you said it's out middle of July. Yes. And if you pre-order it now, it will be delivered on that date to you. So that's a, a great thing. Oh, and then especially for this crowd, let's do a little special offer. Uh, so if you pre-order a hard copy and then you go to carolroth.com slash pre-order, I have a thing that's going just for the next two weeks where you can also get a autograph signature yeah. and or some physical metal. 
So Ooh. you will actually own things. Like if you don't, if you don't, if you haven't had a chance to start getting that medal, this can be the first win. So that's an opportunity. So pre-order first, and then you'll upload your receipt at carolroth.com slash pre-order. But we only have a couple weeks left on that. So do that today. Yeah, get it done. That way you don't forget. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure and a great run through of uh, some important topics. So much appreciated. Thanks so much for taking the time and for your your thorough reading and uh, support. Appreciate it. All right.